I'm Dr. Laura Flora Shaw, and this is Science Montessori and Parenting from White Paper Press, the publisher of the Montessori White Papers. Here at SMP, we discuss the intersections of science, Montessori, and parenting. And if you're not yet a member of the SMP Facebook group, look us up. It's a great place to get vetted information, to get your questions answered, and to suggest topics for our podcast. So I know it's been a while since our last episode, and I apologize for that, but so much has happened. I completed and defended my dissertation, graduated from my doctorate program, although technically the official hooding ceremony doesn't happen until May, and I started working on some academic papers based on my research. In a later episode, I'll share more about my research, which explored normalization, a Montessori construct foundational to teacher evaluation. And I explored that construct with a group of AMI elementary teachers. And yes, you heard that right. I said elementary teachers. Even though theoretically normalization is a first plane phenomenon, it turns out that elementary teachers have very knowledge about it that influence how they behave with the children in the classroom. And if the teachers and administrators have differing understandings of normalization despite having the similar training, that can actually make their teacher evaluation systems very ineffective. Now, if you have no idea what normalization is, don't worry, I'll explain that as well. But that, again, is for a whole other episode. Anyway, I thought I could get a podcast done with everything else that was going on this summer, but alas, not possible. Also, I just want to let you know that I'm continuing to read the research on media and development, which is the theme of the next volume of the Montessori White Papers. But the first white paper, which is entitled The Screen Media Wire Young Children's Brains for Inattention, is currently available for subscribers on the White Paper Press website, which is www.whitepaperpress.us. And the rest of the papers for that volume are in the works and will be published soon. I also just want to note that your organization and individual subscriptions help to support not only the writing of the white papers, but this podcast, as well as other writing published on Medium and the Huffington Post. So a big thank you to all you subscribers out there, as it's your subscriptions that make this work possible. Now, today's episode was actually recorded in May, and I finally had the time to properly edit it to ensure good sound quality. However, I'm not the best audio editor, so my bird makes her usual appearance with the occasional squawk. Sorry, she doesn't like to be left out. In this episode, I talked to two Montessorians, Bonnie D. and Aki Ko. They met in college at MIT, actually before they came to know Montessori philosophy. After college, Bonnie became a Montessori teacher, and she invited Aki to her classroom, who then years later ended up sending her own children to Montessori, and in fact, sent her children to the school I used to run. I'd heard a lot about Bonnie from Aki over the years, so it was really great to have the opportunity to meet and talk with her about Montessori when she visited Aki last spring. So in this conversation, we talk about Montessori math, the importance of the third year of the primary, the myth of the Montessori utopia, and testing. And this is an unusual episode because you actually get to hear the perspectives of a teacher, a Montessori teacher, well, technically she's now a former teacher, and a Montessori parent, all in one conversation. So let's get into it. Okay, so now we'll just have you guys introduce yourselves one at a time. Bonnie, you want to start? Sure. I'm Bonnie D. I am Montessori trained at the primary, elementary, and adolescent levels. 
um, and I've worked as a guide in all three levels. I've been out of the Montessori world professionally for several years now, but I am philosophically a Montessorian. Yeah, I think once you become a Montessorian, you're always a Montessorian. I think you're right. I'm Aki Ko. Uh, Bonnie is my roommate from college, and uh, she's the one who introduced me to Montessori. I have two children that are uh, went through Montessori education. The first was in Montessori from when she was six months to when she uh, graduated the adolescent program, and my son is in the sixth year going into the adolescent program next year at a Montessori school. Okay, so you guys have an interesting story in terms of Montessori. I mean, obviously you were friends before Montessori entered into your lives, and that started with you first, Bonnie, right? Yes. I discovered Montessori by accident. I was working as a technical writer in the software industry, and through a casual conversation with a friend, learned that there was this thing called Montessori, and that much of what it espoused in terms of how to educate children, how to be with children, just made tremendous amounts of sense and addressed the kinds of things that I had always thought as a student made no sense about traditional education. And now, so I think it's interesting too, because you went through a very rigorous traditional education, especially in your undergraduate year. Um, So do you want to talk a little bit about that and how that also inspired you to, as you learned about Montessori, to continue that way? Sure. I have a bachelor's degree in physics from MIT. My experience as an undergraduate was that the work was very challenging. The work was very difficult. The work was intellectually difficult and emotionally difficult. And it wasn't really intended to help me learn. It seemed to be intended to test me, uh, to, to winnow out the weak, if you will. So that experience just combined with my experiences in elementary and high school, in which I developed an adolescence sophomoric disdain for many of the methods of traditional education and saw it as counter to learning. And so when I heard about Montessori, it just resonated with so much of what I had felt and things that I had identified as what was wrong, but I hadn't figured out what would be right. And then I heard about Montessori and light bulbs went off all over the place. So then Aki, you had been Bonnie's roommate in college at MIT. What were you studying I was studying nuclear engineering at MIT and have a bachelor's and master's in nuclear engineering. Okay, yeah, one of those um, really soft science subjects, yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, so then you get married, you have children at some point, and Bonnie suggests what to you for your children? Well, before I got married, I actually visited Bonnie when she was an elementary guide, and she invited me to come to her work, which seemed sort of unusual, first of all, for a teacher to say, come to my classroom and uh, be there. 
So I came to her classroom and spent, I think, the whole day uh, there and had the experience of a child reading to me and giving me lessons in the classroom. And to me, that was just eye-opening for, this is in the lower elementary, so I think it was probably a second grade child giving me lessons on reading and other items. And to me, that was just amazing that there's this child that has the confidence and also has this ability to say, you are another person and I am going to you know, work with you on this material. So that was my experience. And my husband, uh, Fumi, also had the experience where Bonnie helped a friend do a homeschool based on the Montessori method. And he actually visited her homeschool and worked with those children, making stories together with them. So he had also experienced Montessori through that homeschool. Yeah. Wow. So let's, let's talk about math and Montessori because... The way Montessori does math is so different than the way they do it in conventional education. So my children just went into conventional education this year, and now everything is on a worksheet, basically, from a textbook, on a worksheet, that type of thing. Uh, and obviously, math for both of you in your backgrounds is very important. So Bonnie, when you discovered Montessori math, what did you think? When I first saw the binomial cube, which is a Montessori material that first gets introduced in primary, literally I cried because it was the concretization of what generally gets introduced in junior high school uh, or even in high school as a somewhat difficult algebraic concept. And it gets introduced formulaically. Here's how you do it. Step one, step two, step three, and it doesn't mean a thing. Right. Doesn't mean a thing. That's true. <laughs> right. So Why am I doing it? So that I can pass the test. But Montessori started with the concrete representation, the concrete embodiment that the algebra represents. It's the thing on paper that's just the representation. That physical cube that the children work with as a puzzle the pieces of that cube are the things that are being represented in that binomial equation. And I found it absolutely beautiful and inspiring. So I like the, the, the fact that you, you use the term embodied. So working with this material, it's, it's in this physical way, having this abstract concept made concrete for them, and then, and then them physically working with it. It's almost as if the concept behind the material really becomes a part of them. There's a deeper understanding than could ever come from a, 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 just a two-dimensional representation. I think when children work with these concrete materials, and this binomial cube that I'm talking about is only one of many, materials that actually embody the mathematical concepts. Mathematics is a completely self-consistent universe. And so when you have objects that really do embody what those concepts are, you can move them around, you can manipulate them, you can see and feel the relationships. So for example, with that binomial cube, you're working with these pieces Okay, you've got a piece that is A by B by B. That's the famous AB squared. 
And so by the time you're actually shown the algebraic representation of that, that's just a little bit of icing on the cake. Mm. You look at it and say, oh, that's, that's how you spell it. That's a good way to put that. And one of the things, so we got to chat a little before we actually started recording this podcast, and we were talking about being able to do the math in your head, or as I, I like the way that you put it, you said, push the numbers around in, in your mind, and how working with these materials enables the children to just do that so effortlessly. Talk a little bit about that work in terms of the, the checkerboard material. Sure, sure. The checkerboard is a material, um, a Montessori material developed for multiplication of multi-digit numbers. When I worked with lower elementary students, we would start with the pegboard, in which they use individual pegs to represent units in tens. We would start multiplying that by a single-digit number. Okay, take 32, lay it out six times and then count up your pegs, and when you get 10 units, exchange them for a 10 and all that sort of thing. And the children would see the colored patterns that that makes. And we would move on to multiplying by two digits. And so when you multiply by 14, okay, lay it out 14 times. And then see that you've got now a column of 14 units, and you can grab 10 of them and exchange them for a 10. And then they would see the patterns in colored rectangles that get created when you do that. So they would derive those colored patterns. And then after that, after they were seeing what the patterns were, then I would show them the checkerboard, which is a material that was developed, that is a Montessori material, a material that was developed by, I believe, by Mario Montessori. And they would see that, okay, there's this pretty board that already has this pattern that mm-hmm. I've figured out. So I know why the pattern is this way, and now I can use it. And you'd mentioned, too, using these materials actually with older children who had not had, adolescents who had not had prior Montessori experience. And what was your experience in using these materials that would would be considered sort of, I guess, remedial or low-level materials with them. But what was your experience? I suppose from from a developmental standpoint, they weren't fascinated by bead bars. Right. But also from a developmental standpoint, they were logical enough that I could say to them, okay, these are things that get used in Montessori. Let's just work with them because it's a really helpful way to understand these concepts. And so we would take the bead bars, generally these processes of deriving the materials and understanding them would go faster, probably less organically, but this still enabled these adolescents to gain a concrete image of what it was that they were doing. So still, when when we got to, we don't need no stinking calculators, It was because when we use the phrase pushing numbers around in your head, and I I think I hadn't really thought about this before, that the word pushing, the the verb is, is really about physical movement. It really is a reference back to moving the physical objects, moving those beads and moving those pegs. Yes. I know the movement is so important. 
It is, and to the adolescents as well, even though they're not so fascinated with the materials, still having that experience with the movement means something, and they can refer back to it in their minds. Yeah, I, I, and I think that that's true at any age. There's greater understanding from actually doing, from touching, from a more three-dimensional real-life experience. People always talk about learning by doing being yeah. the most effective and I think learning by touching and manipulating is tremendously effective. But even just moving back to two dimensions, as you're saying this, as Aki and I were driving here earlier today, we did what one does these days and used Google to give us directions, turn here, go this far, turn there, which certainly achieved the goal of getting us here. But the two of us were talking about the days of paper maps and how that gave us more of a sense of where we were and the relationship between where we were and where we were going that's missing when you simply get directions. And to add to that, the other thing we were talking about is actually having a globe because yes. even a flat map versus a globe, your, your sense of where things are and the size of things and the distance of things, when you can actually touch and sort of use a string to say this is how far away, um, makes a huge difference. My son the other day was asking about a location and said, is that really the right size on the map? Which meant that he was aware of the fact that size is different on a flat map. And I said, yes, that's closer to the equator. So that's pretty close. It's more things on the poles that are very different size. So he's a Montessori child. And I was very proud that he asked, is this the right size for this, this location? Yeah, that is, that's really great. And also, and then you get into the whole political aspect of how maps are created, right? So, you know, a map that's created in the U.S., you realize that the U.S. is the center of the world and the universe. <laughs> yes, it's on top yeah. and in the middle. <laughs> exactly. But that's a different conversation. <laughs> so you ended up choosing Montessori for your children. And can you tell us a little bit about what your experience has been as a parent? I mean, I know a lot of parents tend to experience anxieties. And we've known each other actually a fair amount of time. I should let listeners know that. And I've never sensed that in you. Of course, you're not an anxious person to begin with, which helps. Did you have some ever concerns or ever doubts or, I mean, what, what's your experience been? Well, just to give a little history of my child and, and Montessori. So we knew about Montessori and was very interested to give our children, our, well, first our child, Erica, a Montessori education. And we were in Japan, and I really didn't know how much Montessori there was in Japan. But when we first looked for a childcare, we Googled or, or we found out that there was a uh, a childcare location close to us that was associated with a Montessori nursery school or kinder house. So she was in that daycare. And then she started from that and she learned some of the materials even in that daycare. So then we moved to the United States when she was two and went to a Montessori school. And even though she didn't speak English very well, she saw the materials at this very large Montessori school. It was the Whitby School, which is one of the first Montessori, I think it's the first Montessori school in the United States. And she was so excited to see all this material. She didn't realize that she didn't speak English. <laughs> and she was very excited about the school for a few months. And after a few months, she actually realized that everything she spoke wasn't being understood and she had a little difficulty, but that was a several months after she had joined the school. 
And after that, we moved every few years and continued on Montessori in near Philadelphia and then in California. And it was really great because every time she goes into a new school, even though the environment, the home, the location, a lot of things are different, when she walked into that classroom, she saw that same material and teachers that spoke that same language. And that was the one constant as she moved from state to city, et cetera, which was huge. Yeah. Um, and it was a consistent uh, education. It continued on the same line in terms of progression in terms of language. It might be Japanese in one place and English another, but the concept of how they learned math, language, you know, history, et cetera, was the same. So that consistency actually gave me a lot of comfort that it wasn't sort of a random progression or that people locally were deciding this is what we learn here. Right. And plus, then she can come into a new Montessori environment, but then also just know how to be a student in that environment, how to be self-directed in her learning and be part of that community. I mean, I remember when she came into the school that I was at, there was no transition that you could see. She just came in and she knew what to do. Yes. And yeah. So did you see that when she made other transitions as well? Yes, other, she would yeah. go in. We've, we observed. The nice thing about a Montessori school, most will let you observe. So, and they go, you go into the classroom even before she starts and she goes into the, into the room and talks to the teacher and sees the materials and she knows what's there and she knows how to behave and, and the teachers are thrilled to have her usually <laughs> because of her uh, background. And so she's, you know, been able to be a leader in, in those environments. And the, the other really wonderful thing at the Montessori is the multi-age uh, environment. So when she moved to the school in Philadelphia, after two or three days, she said, oh, I have a best friend. And uh, she told us the best friend was a six-year because they only had one elementary class. So, you know, we sort of said, aha, she's your best friend. And we just knew that this older girl was taking the leadership and helping out the new child in the, the classroom, but not in a way that, okay, I'm the older child and, you know, this is how we do things, in a way that made her feel like now she's my best friend. And that, that, was com that was a reasonable thing is to have a six-year be the best friend of a first-year. And yeah. uh, so that's the kind of environment that, you know, is just really the social part is just as important as the academic piece. And I oh, think yeah. the academic piece will come. Yeah, the social aspect, it really gives the children an opportunity to practice being citizens and being part of that community. Um, my daughter is a pretty natural leader. And she ended up being one of the older kids in most of the small schools that she's been at. But my son is much shyer. And so, but I've seen him as he goes into the second, third year, and he would not volunteer for very much at the lower ages. But she learns to lead the, the younger kids and starts taking leadership positions and actually wants to do that and feels more confident doing that. So it's wonderful how for any child, you have that progression when you're in the third year, you have certain responsibility, but they take that on with joy and they're not pushed to do more than they can, but they're being leaders for children that are one or two years you know, junior to them, so they feel very comfortable doing that and teaching them what their strength is. My son is very strong in math, so he'll help other children with math, and he might have a younger children child help him with reading. So that's the kind of thing where you can learn from 
anybody at any age, and it's just a natural environment to take leadership, which is something that Bonnie had said, you have to keep the child in that third year of primary. And Laura, I think you said the exact same thing. And you could see that transformation as they go to that, that final year and take the leadership, even at that primary level. Yeah, it's so true. When I hear you talk, Aki, it's also, it reminds me of how sometimes some parents would say, well, I, I think Montessori is for child number one, but not for child number two, because child number one is just such a natural leader. And child number two is a very different type of child. And and you say, no, 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 there's opportunities for every type of child in this environment. And so for some children, actually, their work is actually to learn to be more assertive or learn how to naturally not be forced to, but to take on a leadership role at times and to, to trade that hat back and forth instead of expecting other children to always take on the leadership role while they don't. Or It gives lots of opportunity for lots of different temperaments. So I don't think that it's necessarily the case that, you know, Montessori, Montessori doesn't only work for a particular type of child, you know. I, I can't say that it works for every single child, because I'm not comfortable saying that about anything in any way. But for the variety of temperaments that you generally see, both my kids are very, very different. And one child needed to have some opportunities to lead, and the other child actually needed to learn how to be less of a leader sometimes. (laughs) If I can speak to that, people say, some people say, oh, Montessori isn't for every child. Montessori is for every child if we did it if we adults could implement it ideally, boiled down to just a few words, Montessori is follow the child, each individual child. Meet that child where he or she is. Give them what they need. So if we could do it perfectly, it would be for every child. And I actually, I don't disagree with that. I think I'm thinking more uh, in terms of logistics. For instance, not every school has the supports that some children would require. If you're non-speaking autistic, for instance, you will need some additional supports that can't be provided within a typical classroom. But in the ideal world, those supports would be there and every child would have exposure to every other different type of child. Mm -hmm. So yes, that I agree with in that that sense. And so as close as we can come to that ideal the more we approach the answer that, yes, we can serve every child. And you're right, we can't serve every child because we don't have every resource. But certainly when we're talking about, oh, my child tends to be very independent, but no, my child needs more direction. Yeah. Well, if your child needs more direction, then we'll give your child more direction. We'll probably try to help him become more independent. But we'll meet him where he is. We'll certainly do our best to meet him where he is. That's our job. Exactly. But ultimately prepare them for the, for the world. Yes. Where they're going to need to be in all different kinds of situations, right? It's, it's interesting because the Montessori is so much about adaptability to the environment, to whatever environment the child happens to be in or will be in as an adult. Yes, and while Montessori used and presented materials and lessons that spoke to the society that she was in, the time that she was in, practical life lessons in rug beating, for example, it makes sense now to have practical life lessons in setting the DVR. It's about, as you said, preparing them for the world in which they live and in which they're going to live as adults. 
Yeah. I want to... If, I want to say something about the socialization that you were talking about as well. And absolutely, the, the multi-age groupings do feed that. But I think one of the biggest things that feeds that is that children are moving and acting independently in their academic life, as well as at recess. That in the traditional model, the only time that children get to exercise and express their own sense of what to do and how to be is out at recess. And that's where you get the Lord of the Flies. They're also not helped to know how to be kind to each other, to be supportive of each other. It's not that children are inherently mean. It's that they don't know how to be otherwise. Right. And so we have the area called grace and courtesy. So part of what they learn is how to be kind and a part of their entire day, the the academic part of their day is as well as the purely social part of their day, the, the work as well as the play has them moving independently. One of the things I used to tell my elementary students, especially the ones who had had some experience with traditional education Cheating is allowed, by which I meant, yes, you are supposed to help the kid next to you. You're not just letting him peek at your paper and hoping that the adults won't notice. You're supposed to help them. Well, as you were talking, it, re- it reminded me, too, that sometimes parents can assume, though, as well, that, that the Montessori environment is, is a sort of utopia for the children, right? That there's never any conflict, right? But you said something, so what you said that made me think about that is how they're taught to behave through these these situations and how to handle them effectively. So it's not whether or not conflict occurs because we're talking about people. Conflict is going to occur. It occurs in our families. It occurs with the people we love the most. It, it's just a part of life. The difference is, I think, between a conventional environment and a Montessori environment is that the Montessori environment is such that it, that's an, an expected part of the learning. And so the children are taught how to deal with these things effectively. Whereas in a conventional environment, it's like, I, that's actually not part of our learning. Our learning is the academics only, and you need to get your homework turned in, and uh, you need to do well on these tests. Yes, absolutely. And there are certainly times in the classroom where there is an argument about, I took this material out first. No, I had it out first. Uh, it's not a utopia. And you're right. The difference is that the adults understand and therefore the children come to understand that it is part of our work to figure out how to handle those situations and that who's going to work with the map when and how becomes more important than knowing which state is where and what's the capital of Wyoming. Right, exactly. So, Aki, I wanted to to get back to your experience. Did you have any, though? Did you ever have any anxiety at all? Like, my my children aren't coming home with grades. They're not coming home with test scores. And then, Bonnie, afterwards, I'd like you to speak to testing. But what, what was your experience? 
Well, we actually cheat a little. <laughs> and the reason is my kids go to uh, a Japanese school on Saturdays. So and Japanese school are about as conventional and traditional and as possible. And uh, so my children go to a local Japanese school on Saturdays, and they also attend the local public Japanese school for about a month uh, during the summertime because the summer, um, the end of the term is earlier in June in uh, the United States, and it's in July in Japan. So I've seen them walk into a conventional school and just pick up the academics very, very easily going from the Montessori environment. So we've actually had a way to normalize between um, or understand where they stand academically, and they've always academically been great when they've been in those conventional environments. So we never really had um, a lot of anxiety. I think on some areas, specific areas, we asked the teachers about, can we do a little bit more in terms of certain types of problems in math or asked about what's being done in certain areas. But um, they were always very responsive about this is the prog you know, the progress or here's the things that they need to work on. Okay, so that's interesting. So you it's like you had your children in both systems in in terms of conventional system in a way simultaneously. But simultaneously with with Montessori. And I'm assuming that's because you wanted them to learn the Japanese language. Yes. We primarily. wanted them to be both bilingual and bicultural and in Japan they have this uh, system where you can go into the public schools for a few weeks without officially being registered to that school. So it's a really great way of not just learning the language but knowing how a uh, a conventional Japanese school works where you have 30 kids and they all line up to go to the pool and they know exactly how to, you know, eat lunch and they get in line. And, and so they know what that system looks like versus their Montessori experience. And my son actually says, well, you know, I don't like school. And when he says, I don't like school, he meant the conventional school because he doesn't really consider the Montessori school a school. It's where he goes to, to learn. <laughs> wow. That's really interesting. Wow. He doesn't have to sit down and just read and follow because that to him is not learning. That's going to school. That's compliance is more of what it sounds like, I guess. <laughs> like I just have to comply with what's, what's happening here. That's interesting. But you have, so, so in, in my experience in working with parents, you know, even parents who love Montessori, they will have they'll have anxiety because people in their family, they don't understand what is a strange school? Like, what are you talking about? And, and why do you have your children here? And then their friends, you know, are talking about, well, my kid's doing the mission project or my kid's doing this. And I, and I love the home. I've heard parents say at parties, I love the homework that my children get because I know exactly what they're learning. And I love these tests because I know that they're learning. And for our listeners, I just wish you could see the expressions on the faces here around me. But so, so there are reasons, you know, these are the, the other reasons that you have them in the Japanese school that completely makes sense, you know, the cultural, the bilingual and everything, and just to have this other understanding. And, but you were never tempted to just pull them from their Montessori school and just... No. 
I knew exactly what I was keeping them away from. But the other, one of the interesting things from our previous discussion is one of the areas I do think they do need to understand because they will eventually have to go to a conventional school is test taking. So to me, it was very interesting. We talked about test taking is a specific skill and it is something that they have to learn to deal with the world. Right. But they don't need a million years of schooling in a particular way. Okay, Bonnie, can you speak to this now? Testing is something that I have very strong feelings about. A test is an objective, reproducible measurement of something. I can test your temperature. If I can study for it and change the results, it's not a legitimate measurement of anything, except how well I did at changing the results. So any test that you can study for is not a test. In my classroom, I knew how, I don't even want to say how well the students understood a particular concept or how well they could accomplish a particular task. I knew what they were working on. I knew what they had mastered. I knew what they were struggling with because we observe. That's at least two-thirds, maybe three-quarters of what we do as Montessorians. So I didn't need a test to tell me that. And I spent a lot of hours writing very detailed descriptions, reports to the parents, rather than giving them a grade, to tell them this is what your child is working on. I also, to Aki's point, okay, test-taking is a practical life skill in many places. And I started thinking about the fact that not only can one study for tests, but one can take these test prep courses where they teach you the tricks of taking a test. And I understood because I was always a good test taker. I don't know why, I just was. That part of what I always did in taking a test was to think not just what's the right answer, but what does the test giver want me to tell them? And so I would put out tests along with their answers as an activity on the shelf and show the students what it was about and talk about, yes, there's some subject matter knowledge involved, but you're going to take a multiple choice test with with four colored circles for each question. We've learned some probability. You've got a 25% chance even if you know exactly nothing. So your expected score on a test in a subject about which you know absolutely nothing isn't zero, it's 25. And then if you know some of the test-taking tips, then your expected score goes up. So I taught it to them as a skill. And I also used that as a way to demonstrate to their parents that the tests were meaningless (laughs) in terms of a measurement of the children's learning. Yes, thank you. That's great. That is really great. It reminds me too, actually, of uh, there's a story. It's this is not about a standardized test, but um, a story that I had given one of my lectures where I, I took uh, an AP history class in high school. I remember studying for the final exam, and we always had so we we had three exams over the course of a semester, and they were always these essay questions. So this this isn't you're not necessarily dealing with probabilities the way that you're talking about, but what I started to notice was that there was a pattern to these questions. 
And it didn't take much to figure out what, I mean, we didn't have that, that many exams, right? By the final exam, though, I knew essentially what the pattern was. And so I was studying for the exam with my best friend, and I, I just said, look, let's just write out the answer to the essay question right now. And she goes, well, we can't do that because we don't know what the question is. I said, yeah, we do. Let's just think about it for a second. First, she taught us this. Then she asked us that. Then she taught us that. Then she asked us this. She just taught us this. She's going to ask us now that. Okay. So, and she goes, are you sure? And I said, I, I'm telling you. So we cheated. Yeah, we cheated. We wrote out our essays, uh, as the answers to the essay question, brought it into class. And the, the teacher comes in, and this is a three-hour final exam. Teacher comes in, she writes the question up on the board, and I'll never forget, I look across the room because we had assigned seats. I was not allowed to sit next to my friend because we talked too much, but we, we had assigned seats across the room from each other, and I look over at her, and she looks at me, mouth agape, like, oh my God, it's the question. <laughs> and needless to say, we got A pluses on that exam. You know, I got an A in that class. I don't remember anything from that class. You know, did I learn anything? The one thing I really learned was how to reverse engineer my courses and learn how to take tests and learn how to give the, the teacher what he or she wanted. And unfortunately, that is a life skill. It is a life skill. How to give someone the answer that they're looking for. But it's very interesting to me that you said, yes, we cheated. Isn't that funny? In what sense is it cheating to have recognized the pattern? Right. To know what it is that's, that's coming up. Yeah. And to actually prepare yourself for it. If that's the mindset, right, where you are, if your whole learning experience is, I just need to give the teacher what he or she wants. And yet our economic environment is such that, well, we need creative, innovative thinkers. Well, we have spent years and years and years training children to think about giving people what they want, which doesn't lend itself to creativity. And it doesn't necessarily, it doesn't lend itself to learning how to learn. So how, if I need to change professions, which I'm going to have to do, how do I do that? What do I need to learn? It's, there's a lot of just tell me what you need and I'll just do that as opposed to I'm going to create my next profession or I'm going to create a new situation or something. Do you know what I'm saying? It's not. And that that's an innovation. I say without being able to cite any sources that much of the philosophy of traditional American education is the factory model. You have to know how to do precisely this in this way. I'm going to show you, you spit it back. That's and right. that's no longer what's tremendously useful. What's wonderful about that is that our natural, our natural mode is more creative, is more problem solving. One of the things that I've pointed out to parents is remember what your child was like when they were learning to walk and to talk. When they first started crawling and you said, oh, no, they're going to get into everything. Well, why are they going to get into everything? Because the most powerful urge they have is to learn. And the fact that within a few short years, we can turn that into, I don't want to go to school, 
is an amazing achievement. We've made them despise the thing that is most natural for them to do. Yeah. I've said to parents over the years, brains come into the world wanting to learn. And conventional school just knocks it right out of them. Yes. (laughs) I just want to thank you both for taking the time this afternoon to share your thoughts and experiences. And it's really been such a pleasure to have both of you. So thank you. Thank you very much. This has been tremendously enjoyable. As I said, I am a Montessorian, so it's always great fun to be able to talk about this. Thank you so much. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, guys. All right. Until next time.